Welcome to Fully Booked. My name is Adam. And my name is Frank. And we are fully booked and not fully recharged. I feel like an old man right now. I've pulled a muscle in my upper back. Frank, you have also pulled a muscle in your back. I did it today uh, working out. I felt it doing a bench press with resistance bands. And all of a sudden, believe it or not, I kept working out despite my better judgment. I was like, normally I say to myself, you should probably stop, but I didn't. I only work out my legs through running. So I was at the park with my son and there was a kid who had gotten his basketball stuck at the hoop. You know, sometimes when you throw the basketball, it gets just lodged in the corner of the hoop. So I was like, oh, I just ran into the situation without even thinking. And I was like, I'll just scale this. And then I went to scale the basketball hoop and immediate, immediately pulled a muscle in my back, <laughs> trying to lift my body weight, which I can't do because I have no upper body strength. At least you know what you did. I don't even know how I did it. That was the weird thing for me. I was doing my normal range of motion that I always do. And all of a sudden, yeah. it just was like, eh. and and I was like, ow. <laughs> I can hear oncoming middle age calling in the distance. That's exactly <laughs> what that is. <laughs> We're not getting any younger. The, the 20s are over. <laughs> no, no, I'm overfed and I, I've pulled a muscle and it's going to be it's a great time to record. <laughs> ow. It hurts to laugh. Ow. I, you know what it was hurting me before? It was hurting to like breathe. It hurts like to breathe in. Yeah. Because I could feel the, the muscle contracts when you do that. And so I could feel it in my back and I'm like, oh boy, I hope uh, tomorrow this subsides. Otherwise, I'm going to need to like take some Tylenol or something. Well, now I'm, I'm obsessive about like I have to run every other day, but there's also, you know, Canadian wildfire smoke in the air. <laughs> so between like the muscle and running in that, I'm like, oh, this is just, just, just get back home, <laughs> go home, hang all the back and, and, and difficulty breathing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the difficulty breathing is both the muscle and the air because, because the air is on fire. <laughs> yeah. Not a good combination of, uh, of factors there. Not a good combination at all, but it is summertime now. And even though I'm not teaching anymore, I still am afforded a teacher's break. So I have been catching up on my reading. Frank, have you ever read any Ed Brubaker? Yes, I have a long time ago. He's the best, in my opinion, Captain America writer of all time. That's right. He wrote the Winter Soldier, correct? Yep. Probably one of the best in general, comic book writers ever. Yeah, I feel tremendously behind the times because the pairing of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, they do crime graphic novels. And I had I have never read them, despite, you know, Stray Bullets, which is a which is a crime comic book series, my favorite comic book series. Absolutely adore, but I've never read any Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. So I went to the local library and picked up two books, Pulp and Criminal, volume one. And I stayed up until one in the morning the other night reading both of these and then immediately went to the library the next day and checked out four more of their books. They're astounding. I was going to say, I take it you liked it. <laughs> Holy cow. I, I, and I know I've, I've said this before with regards to, to Tinian with, with horror, but like these are at, hands down some of the best comics, graphic storytelling that I've, I've ever read <laughs> like just astounding i haven't read brew baker's you know uh what what is um independent stuff before i've only read his captain america but i've heard from people at the comic book store that he does fantastic independent writing of his own stories as well the thing that i think i read of his back in the day if not for some older captain america comics 
was probably when he the Captain America and Bucky when he yeah the team book. yeah so that was the last I can recall of of Ed Brubaker and I and I knew at the time he his writing of Captain America and the character was just absolutely phenomenal yeah it, it and I've read the Winter Soldier I, I really enjoyed it I'd forgotten because it'd been years that that was Ed Brubaker. Um, but I, you know, him, him and Sean Phillips for years and years and years, they've been doing these crime series and they just released a, a standalone uh, like crime graphic novel the other day. I forget what it's called. And I, I hadn't read anything by them yet, so I didn't pick it up because I was like $20. That's kind of steep. I, I will I will instantly pick up anything that comes out from any graphic novel that comes out from them from now on. <laughs> I can't blame you. I mean, Brubaker is top of his field he's he's an exceptional writer i actually you know you you telling me this makes me actually want to take a gander into his independent stuff i mean because i know how much i liked his writing back in captain america days i've been wanting him to come back and do it again i've talked to you know the comic book store before if they think you know will he ever do this again he seems to be enjoying his freedom of writing what he wants to write not that, you know, he isn't iconically renowned for his Captain America work, but I think that phase of his life may just be done at this point. And unfortunately, the Captain America title has never really had the same chutzpah yep. that made that title and that character so iconic. But to see him doing that now for like what you're talking about, it's not surprising to me. Oh, and, and honestly, too, because I looked back and I was like, what else has he done? Oh, yeah, he did Captain America. He's done some Batman. He did The Man Who Laughs, a, J- a Joker story. Oh, right. After these two volumes, and this just scratches the surface of the crime stuff, I have absolutely no interest of reading any superhero stuff from him. Like, just give me more crime stuff. I mean, these were both five star books i and, and i was just i was reading um criminal volume one cat which is coward is the subtitle of that one and all the time i was like go to bed go to bed it's 12 30 you gotta go to bed i was like no i absolutely can't stop reading this pulp dude it, it, pulp is about a pulp writer in the 1930s in new york city and he's he's writing western stories and the western stories are his like he's he's a wild west outlaw when he was younger he was an outlaw in the wild west and now he writes these pulp stories where he kind of relives that but he's you know he's reformed now he lives in the tenements with his wife and he's getting paid garbage for these pulp comics and he tries to defend somebody on the subway and is is beaten up for trying to defend this guy and he has a heart attack and the guy that's employing him to write these stories is like, you know, it's, he's like, I've already licensed out your character. So other people are writing it. Like, I know you need the money, but like you're a liability at this point. And then it becomes this like revenge tale where the revenge tale portion of it is the second half, but the middle portion is like, I'm going to go at some point like I'm old. I'm going to have a heart attack. I need to take care of my wife. So I'm going to plan one more heist. And there's like Nazis in it that he's going up against. Like there's the that's where the revenge portion comes in because they attack one of his friends. And, And there's so much packed into it. And it's like 70 pages long. The artwork is gorgeous it's it's one of the best books i've ever read he finishes the story in 70 pages 70 pages and packs all of that in that, that yeah he's a, he's a master yeah and i know that seems like wow that's a lot of disparate threads it all makes perfect 
sense because of the way that it's told, especially because you have what, what he's writing is a mirror of his past. So you're getting so much of that character while the story just rockets forward. Um, and your whole, I don't want to spoil too much, but like the, the whole thing where he's like, he's planning another heist to help his wife out. Like that's interrupted by a guy who was trying to track him down at some point, like in the West, like he was trying to stop him from, you know, robbing train cars and recognized him from his writing and was like, yeah, I realized that it's you and that I need your help. We've got Nazis in New York and like we need to we need to steal from them. So let's make that the heist. That's the heist that he does. Like, oh, it's it's so good. That, that, such a fresh take on a on a on a conceptual story, yeah. right? Like just really compelling and I think that's just like the masterful work of Brubaker. I just don't think there are many writers like him. It's been a very long time since I've read something by him, but that he's kind of just known for being that good. I've never heard somebody say they don't like Brubaker. He's always been in some ways an idolized writer. Oh yeah. And you can, you can see why it's just, it's masterful criminal. Um, so criminals is a series of standalone novels, basically graphic novels. So you'll see it says like volume one, volume two, volume three, but volume three is going to be a completely different story than volume one. And that first volume is, it's really one of those stories. It's so depressing it's so violent, it's so bleak, but it's completely compelling from the first page. And he's able, it's longer than Pulp, but like he'll introduce a character and you'll fall in love with that character within six panels. And then when that character gets killed off very shortly afterwards, it's devastating. <laughs> like there was one part where I was like, no, and I was like, how am I this attached to a character in this short of a story? And it's just the Sean Phillips art is just so perfectly paired with it. Like he's really able to draw the characterizations that Brubaker's going for. Man, I'm telling you, you've you've said you've tried to get into more independent comics. I mean, it's it's image, so it's it's not overly independent. Go with Brubaker, man. Like I don't it's it's he's one of those guys where I read stories like this and I just go like, why 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 would I ever waste my time? on another superhero story. I can't blame you. I mean, to be honest, like we've said it before, and this is coming from someone like myself who is a big fan, and that's what comics always was and is to me, is superheroes. But in a lot of ways, I hate saying it, but the stories suck. Like <laughs> they're really they're really bad, and they're not memorable, and it's something you're not the only person I've had that discussion with. I've talked with the comic store owners. They feel the same way. So in a lot of ways, the, the big two, Marvel and DC, have in a way oversaturated the market with too many titles, leading to less quality of writing. And that's why it's opening up these opportunities for granted image is really part of the quote unquote big three now. Yeah. You know, so like you said, and I agree, they're, they're not really as independent as they once were, like a boom comics would be or a dark horse would be. Um, but yeah, if, you know, I don't, I think. Of all the independent companies for Brubaker to be doing his writing with, I think Image is the best. I mean, granted, I'm a humongous Todd McFarlane fan, so that already solidifies it for me. But the fact that Brubaker chose Image, I mean, I think that's huge. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where I just want something really compelling. When I'm when all it takes for me is to read a book, 
and I'm finding that book more interesting. I mean, let's be honest. We'll be talking about Bukowski soon. As crazy as Bukowski is, his writing for crying out loud is more entertaining sometimes than the comic books I'm reading. And his writing doesn't even even have any sense to it half the time. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like the fact that this guy is writing drunk and this guy wrote a comic sober and I'm finding the drunkness funnier than, than an actually coherent story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's just, it's just crazy to think of the two parallel, you know, the two worlds. Like, and that's the thing; it's it's frustrating with comics like that. So, like, if if we could find writers like Bru, I mean, Brubaker's a, a pro, you know, and it's and if it's coming from the independents, if that's where it's going, then you know, I'm going to try to give more of these a try because I, I've been getting disappointed with the stories I'm reading. Yeah, I mean, the best stuff that I've read in years has been. I mean, so much stuff coming out of Image. Oni comics, so much stuff coming on Oni comics. Like there's so many good writers and, and they cross over into the, the DC and the Marvel world. But like when you see what they can do elsewhere, it's like, why just why bother? <laughs> like I get excited when like somebody comes over like, like um, Zdarsky writing Batman. I'm like, that's exciting. Cause I love Zdarsky, but then I'm like, right. But I want him to have his own playground. That's what I love that Zdarsky does have his own playground. Plus he does DC plus he does daredevil and, and Zdarsky's daredevil is very good. See that and Zeb Wells Spider-Man. Those two things to me are solid stories. Like I, I do think, you know, it feels sacrilegious to me to, to say the Spider-Man one's not the best story, but I can't deny that Zdarsky is the superior writer between him and Zeb Wells. Um, not that Zeb Wells, that doesn't diminish his writing ability by any means, but yeah, it, it seems to be the guys who write the best superhero comic books these days are also independent writers. I don't know if they just have an ability to take characters on a different, not like changing the character from an IP protected standpoint, because you can't do that, but to make it a compelling story, because even uh, the Comic Book Palace YouTube channel always talks about, because they get irritated just like we do. It's like, just tell me a good story. That's all anybody wants to hear at the end of the day. And it's crazy that it feels that sometimes like all we can do is go to the independents for that. Yeah. When it used to not always be the case where it used to be, they were all doing good stories. Although I don't know, I go back and I reread and I'm like, nah, <laughs> this is about the same. <laughs> <laughs> not the same as it's always. I think it's just nostalgia that, that creeps in. You know what I mean? Of course. Yeah. I mean, like I always go back to, and we've talked about it on the podcast before. I always go back to that Batman court of owls. Yeah. Storyline and how excellent that was, you know, and it's, yeah, it's nostalgia. It's the thing AJ doesn't like. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, you got the Greg Capullo art. So you're pulling from the, you know, McFarlane side of things. And yeah, I just, I don't know. I'm telling you, man, if you pick up any, and I'm only judging it based on two graphic novels, but they were so good that I, I can guarantee you the rest of it are like this. Like just pick up any Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips crime graphic novels and you're you're set like you really are set something i'm definitely going to be looking into yeah so i've done that and then i've tried to i've tried to trim back my um currently reading because i've got like <laughs> 10 books going at one time summer's usually the point of time where i'm like all right let's start to actually knock stuff down so i finished philosophy of modern song bob dylan's new book finally got that out of the way because i got a bunch of stuff at christmas so i i was like well let me read the first chapter of everything and now i've started all these books and now i have to finish them it's amazing how many you can read and how fast you could do it. I'm very much the type of reader who I have to read when I'm in the mood. 
like I, I sometimes will try to force myself to read. And granted, whenever I do that, I do get enthralled and captivated into what I'm reading. But I have so many things I like to do. Sometimes it's it's hard. I'm one of the, you know, I consider myself lucky. I'm somebody who can honestly say I'm never bored. So with having so many things that I want to do and then sneaking reading into there, because I know the minute I sit down with whatever I'm reading, like I'm pretty much locked in for a good while now. And then the time gets away from you. Yeah. Well, and it's, I like, I, I don't feel like I'm the fastest reader. I feel like I just like, I, yeah, I carve out enough time every day because I can't I can't sleep without having read something. So that that's helpful because I, I can barely sleep as it is. So that's <laughs> that's also part. Of, I don't know if they're correlated with each other. You're giving yourself your own form of um, is it like an, uh, reading a new form of sleep apnea? <laughs> yeah, but I, I did finish. I'm proud of myself. This is the last thing I'll talk about with what I've been currently reading. But I did finish co- a Comet Bus Omnibus that I've been working on for months. It's called Despite Everything. I've been on this zine kick punk rock zines that were like handwritten from the nineties. Yeah. My, my roots. Exactly. And this, this was an 800 page omnibus Aaron Comet bus put out of like his zine and his zine was just like, you know, it was a fanzine to punk rock, but then it evolved into like him just like, he would just pull in people to write stories about whatever they wanted. Uh, a lot of it was just his travel logs. And like, he's, he's like the quintessential punk he was a roadie for green day until they got big and then he was like i can't i can't go along with this i just need to keep you know dumpster diving and dude would just go from like squat to squat like he never would have like a solid place he would just he would live where he could and he would write about it and he would just go greyhound to greyhound and all of the zines are about that but they're all handwritten and it's like 600 pages but because they're handwritten I would read for like two hours and then look and be like, I feel like I've made it through 10 pages. <laughs> it's so good, but it's very dense when you're reading something that's handwritten all the way through. You know, the only time I read like a magazine or anything like that, I find myself wanting to do that on airplanes. <laughs> this would be the good I one. Always- well, I did it while I was traveling. So maybe that's why <laughs> I always grab the, 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 like if, if there is a magazine on the plane in the, in the seat back pocket, I'll always take that out and check to see if I can find anything in it. Ironically, one time I found an article in there of, you know, written by a frequent traveler of American Airlines at the time. And it just so happened, like this was when Twitter was back, like in its really early days, like, I don't know, maybe 2008, 2009. And one of the people I followed on Twitter was featured in the uh, in, in the article too, because she was a frequent traveler. And I sent her. I said, "Oh, did you know you're in the airplane magazine? <laughs> <laughs> you're in the I forgot a book section of the airplane." <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't find this in the bookstore. No, you're in the the jacket pocket yeah. <laughs> of the chair. <laughs> Every bored po- person has to read you. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. That's awesome. So that's been me. I've just been trying to crank out trying to get caught up on a lot of things just movies that i've amassed books that i've started but haven't finished and i think i still am currently reading nine books because i got distracted by ed brubaker but that's okay i have a lot of comics and two books i still pretty much only when i told you about written in bone i only read the the, the section on the skull <laughs> that, that's gonna be a hard book i think for me to finish as interesting as it is because you long a chapters man <laughs> <laughs> all right so Let's go in the opposite direction then. Let's talk about things that we can read quickly and easily. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the books that pretty much encouraged us to read when we were kids, you know, and what we found ourselves tied to when we were younger and 
you know, if you're a parent listening to this or you're listening with your kids, these are some things that we've drawn are drawn to. And I still, and I'm sure AJ does too, still have an affinity for it today. I'm going to take a slightly different path because the books that I read when I was a kid, I either don't remember or I forced my mom to read the same Pinocchio golden book over and over and over and over again (laughs) until I was old enough to read Goosebumps. Uh, But I've chosen some children's books that I think are going to be appealing to you, a wider audience. Like, and I think it's, it's stuff that I've read to my kids that like real two really good books that I want to point out. Should we talk about the goosebumps thing for a minute? Cause you and I are a huge fan of that. Or do you think that should be its own episode of itself? Uh, we can, we can talk about it for a minute. Cause I, I don't read them anymore. So <laughs> I don't really want to go back and reread them. So <laughs> I still want to collect all of the originals. I have a number of them. Yeah. Those books, I used to remember in elementary school getting the Scholastic magazine thing that they would hand out to all the kids in the classroom. Oh, yeah. And I used to remember seeing them in there. I always, So it was weird because I, I talked to my mom about this not too long ago. And I said, you know, I always felt bad bringing it home and saying I wanted something because I didn't want them to have to pay for it. And she used to say, she says, I wouldn't have never, she's like, I wouldn't have denied you reading. She says, if you wanted something, all you had to do was let me know. I just, I don't know. It was a weird thing I used to do. Only, there was only one, a couple, maybe a couple of times where there's something I really wanted. And I, 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 I told her, but yeah, I remember, I used to get so excited seeing the books in there. Oh, and yeah. Especially the Earth Bump books. I used to, those used to, Piqued my interest all the time. They were the only thing, and this is carried over to my kids as well. They were only the only things that my parents would willfully spoil me with were books. So I knew if like we went to a bookstore, I could get whatever I wanted. Ask for a video game, and it's a hard no. But <laughs> ask for a book, and like ye shall receive. And I ordered plenty of Goosebump books through those orders. I remember I got like the the Monster Blood trilogy when that came mm. with. The gross little gacky monster blood. Oh, did it really? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was cool. And I remember I had this like party trick my parents would make me do where they would throw out a number between one and I think I got up to 50. Pretty sure I got up to 50. So they'd say there 70. were 62 of them, right? The original? I think there were 62, but I couldn't go that high where they would throw it out and they would say like 15. And then I would be able to say like it was this one. And I would be able to say the, the name of whatever number that corresponded within the series. Right. My favorite title, it cracks me up till this day, is Say Cheese and Die. <laughs> That's a good one. That I think I read that a couple times. Or yeah. if I didn't read it a couple times, I at least watched the TV show several times, which watched that episode as an adult. Or I remember like this would have been like 2012 or something. We had a group of people over and we were like, let's watch Goosebumps. Um, <laughs> the pedophile undertones <laughs> that go on in that series. For real? disturbing yes very disturbing and and i think it's it's probably innocent um and i think it probably just stems from like you know you're you got to have creepy adults in the series but man there were i remember that one in particular and a couple other ones where i was like y'all gotta this is darker than i remember for completely different reasons yeah i always found the tv show to be quite disturbing i i thought the books were more tame than the tv show yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Visually, they they darkened it up. The books were extremely tame. Honestly, the books were kind of I tried to reread them like maybe 10 years ago. And I was like, these are kind of lame <laughs> because like every there's only ever one 
quote unquote scare that comes in the third act. But everything leading up to that is every chapter is like two or three pages long and every chapter has a cliffhanger. And then you'd go to the next page and it's like, it was the cat that jumped out. (laughs) You know what it is? It's cheesy fun. I've always liked that with R.L. Stein. You know, I know he's not he's obviously not going to scare. He's not going to petrify like five to seven year olds. So my favorite book, though, of those. I mean, since we're on the topic of kid kid books, I was the um, Horrorland. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that one. That was a good one. So that's another one that goes along the lines of what you said. That the, the ending was very cheesy. Didn't they all like get like pimple popping or something like that? Like, yeah, I don't it was know. They're really goofy. <laughs> I remember very little about the series, or what I remember like very specific scenes that aren't even necessarily that important. I can remember night, night of the living dummy two, uh, where she reaches up into slappy, the ventriloquist dummy and feels his brain. And it turns out it's an old ham sandwich like that. Was, <laughs> that's all I remember about that one. Yeah. I, I, what I do remember, cause I've read, I did read some of his, his newer books, uh, slappy world. What was the subtitle? And yeah, it, what Arl Stone does for the kids, I notice, is he's very good with the suspense, the build up, the build up, the build up. But because he doesn't really want to make something really scary, it's usually more of a, from an adult standpoint, it's a it's a cheesy, goofy thing. To be almost like I was attempting to scare you, but I want you to realize it's all pretend. Right, <laughs> right. Which I don't. And now that I have a wider breadth of of children's literature, maybe it was just the time, like where you're this mass marketed. So you don't want to make parents mad by pushing something a little bit too far. But I'm like, you know, the first, the first line of Charlotte's web is scarier than any goosebumps book I ever read. Like where's Papa going with that ax mama? Like <laughs> that's it. And in all seriousness, like it's, you know, that encompasses like, you know, where it, it would, you read a little bit further and you know, as a kid, like, where he's going with that axe. He's going to yeah. kill the pig. <laughs> like, and, and, and that's, that's a book that deals with death quite in an, in your face kind of, kind Especially of at the end with, with the spider herself and like the bond that they, that they have. Yeah, no, that's, it's a very sad story. That one. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert for Charlotte's web. That's uh, was written by E.B. White. You know what? I'm glad I let you say it. Cause I was about to say Roald Dahl and I was like, no, it's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. Another great children's book. Actually, speaking of that one, what I have always, what always irked me. So I love the movie with Gene Wilder, but they never went to the same length as the book. Like, remember the book when they tell you what happens with the kids at the end? Yes. Yeah. In the movie, they don't tell you what happens with anybody. It's just Charlie in the elevator with his grandpa and they're <laughs> flying around. Which I loved as a kid because I was like, I, I felt weirdly because Roa Dahl wrote some really dark, dark stuff, um, especially his adult things. But as a kid, I was like, this movie is really really messed up like these I, I'm left to assume these kids are dead <laughs> <laughs> yeah because they I remember I I did it in the reverse order yeah. I watched the movie first yeah I did too and, yeah. then, and then I read the book yeah. and then when I read the book I was like oh this is why so many people say and this is me as a kid saying this like this is why so many people say oh the book's better yeah yeah because the book actually told you more of what happened to the kids because you, you, like you said you're left really to like if you watched that in the theater, you would leave wondering, like saying to your parents, like, oh, what happened to Veruca? What happens to it? Like, you know, because you, you don't know. <laughs> I, again, I, as a child, I was like, they're dead. They're absolutely 
dead. <laughs> Which I liked. I love that movie. Honestly, I like. I, I I can't even equate the two. Um, like I, I can't even say it, it's kind of like train spotting, like <laughs> something that I never thought I would compare, but like you can't, the, the adaption into a, a film is a completely separate medium in this case. Like I can't even say like, oh, the book's better. Like, no, it's completely different. And they have to appeal. They have to attempt to appeal more to a mass market yeah. in, in those scenarios. So it gets a little more Hollywood up. They cut out, you know, stuff that may to a reader or a super fan be a missing key cog but you know there could be many people who may not even be thinking what we were thinking about the end of the story some people might not even thought about the kids yeah you know exactly after it have you um with Raul Dahl have you ever read and I know he's written a ton of stuff I never read James and the Giant Peach but I know that's one of his other big ones did you you didn't read that one either no I've read some of his adult fiction but um I'm trying to think I don't believe I've read any of his children's books I have them I have some of them but well, I read Charlie in the Great Glass Elevator. Oh, that's the that's yeah. right. That's the other one. Yeah, I don't think I read that one either. I think it was just Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. And then the movie was called Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. And it wasn't until the remake with Johnny Depp where they went back to the Charlie name. And it sucked. Yeah, I, it, it was nowhere near. It was a far cry from the Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder was the perfect Willy Wonka. Yeah, it was one of those things like, don't bother. You don't need it. We don't need it. So I guess I could start us off here as we went off that on that little tangent, still related to our childhood discussions. Yeah, absolutely. But the two books that I have here, I'll, I'll start with um, probably my favorite childhood book of all time that I checked out, which you could probably find in a previous podcast episode. I've probably mentioned it before. I read so many times and checked it out so many times in the library that back in the day when AJ and I were growing up, we used to have to write our names on the checkout card yeah and the slide and in the in the po- it was like a post i, I couldn't even what it was a one of those flash cards and you you would re- pretty much sign out your name on it so that the library would know that you're checking it out and i checked out this book so many times harold and the purple crayon by crockett johnson and my mom one year for christmas found it for me it's the 60th anniversary edition of it and she bought me the book and what I've always found so endearing about it, it's just this little kid with Harold with a little purple crayon. And all he does through all the pages of the book is draw. There's only a few words on each page and it's very endearing. And still to this day, it's like my little prized possession of my childhood. And I wanted to read a little blurb here. I'll read the first paragraph that's on the inside jacket panel. One evening, Harold decided to go for a walk in the moonlight, but there wasn't any moon, and Harold needed a moon for a walk in the moonlight. Fortunately, he had brought his purple crayon, so he drew a moon. He also needed something to walk on, so he drew a path. And it keeps going on that. He goes through the book drawing all the things that he needs to satisfy what he needs to do, whatever it is he's wanting to do. And it was just a um, really like special book for me. What's crazy is looking at the back jacket sleeve. This I didn't know. Crockett Johnson, it was born in New York and spent his childhood on Long Island. Ah, there you go. No idea. But one interesting thing that you, Adam, pointed out to me is Crockett Johnson had written other Harold-based books, and there are actually some of them on here. Uh, Harold and the Purple Crown is obviously the iconic one. There's Harold's ABCs, Harold's Circus, Harold's Fairy Tale, Harold's Trip to the Sky, Harold at the North Pole. So I think 
it's just like probably my signature book that got me into reading. That was like my my starting off point from when I was a kid. And I can I can I didn't read it until I was an adult to to my kids, but it's such a just beautiful blend of of text and art like the art is gorgeous it's it's just this duo tone you know you have the you have the black outlines of character but then everything else is like the backgrounds are a muted purple and then the the crayon is like a neon purple and it's just man it really pops it really really you have a good copy too because my copy because this is the 60th anniversary it's it's still got the muted tones but it's it's using purple on white oh yeah I could also be misremembering, and I also read a board book version of it. <laughs> okay. Well, the one you're remembering, I actually think was how the original one I had, because I remember the original copy I used to check out from the library. Like, uh, you all can't see it here, but my copy is a little bit bigger. The book I used to rent was a lot smaller than this, and it had what you were describing. But it still has, he's still outlined in a different shade of purple, like with like a darker blackish purple. His face is like more of a shaded shaded in, but it's it's a it's very limited color. It's purple and white flat background, minimal text. He draws everything he needs, but yeah, it's there's something visually for as simple as the art is, visually pleasing about the whole thing. Absolutely. Did you read the carrot seed as a kid? No, I didn't. Oh, I love the carrot seed. It's also Crockett Johnson, and it's <laughs> the whole thing. The whole thing is basically like a kid planted a carrot seed, and then everyone's like, ah, "I don't think it's gonna come up. No, I don't think it's gonna come up. I don't think it's gonna come up." And then at the end, it's a giant carrot. <laughs> it's like, and he always knew it would. And that's the end of the story. It's just the text is so minimal. But then the like the the contrast between the seed is very tiny for the majority of the book. And then you turn the page and it's a giant carrot. <laughs> it's like, yeah, he knew that would happen. Kind of amazing. Crockett Johnson created a niche of minimalism in the books, you know, written here. Like like because I would imagine that this is how all the books written by him would be. I think so, but those are the only ones that I've read. I'm not sure. You know what has been on, and I just pulled it up, what has been on my to-read list since 2012 when this book came out is a biography of Crockett Johnson and Ruth Krauss, because I believe Ruth Krauss is the illustrator. You are correct. It actually says in the back of the book here, for many years, the author and illustrator of the popular comic strip Barnaby, uh, Mr. Johnson also illustrated many wonderful children's books, including Ruth Cross's The Carrot Seed. And so, so yeah, it goes along with exactly what you're saying. So she, the, the biography, I guess it's not a biography of the two of them. It's about their collaboration, but it sounded so fascinating. I put it on my to read list in 2012 and I guess it wasn't that fascinating because I haven't gotten to it yet, but it's a smaller, (laughs) it's a smaller print run, but it's called Crockett Johnson and Ruth Krauss, How an Unlikely Couple Found Love, Dodged the FBI, and Transformed Children's Literature. So from the back, Crockett Johnson and Ruth Krauss were a husband and wife team that created such popular children's books as The Carrot Seed and How to Make an Earthquake. Separately, Johnson created the enduring children's classic Harold and the Purple Crayon and the groundbreaking comic strip Barnaby. Krauss wrote over a dozen children's books illustrated by others and pioneered the use of spontaneous, loose-tongued kids' in children's literature. Together, their style, whimsical writing, clear and minimalist drawing, and a child's point of view is among the most revered and influential in children's literature and cartooning, inspiring the work of Maurice Sendak, Charles Schultz, Chris Van Allsburg, and John 
Czechska. The critical biography examines their lives and careers. Here's where it gets interesting, including their separate achievements when not collaborating, uh, using correspondence, sketches, contemporary newspaper and magazine accounts, archived and personal interviews. Author Philip Nell draws a compelling portrait of a couple whose output encompassed children's literature, comics, graphic design, and the fine arts. Their mentorship of now-famous illustrator Maurice Sendak is examined at length, as is the couple's appeal to adult temporaries. Contemporaries such as Duke Ellington and Dorothy Parker defiantly left us in an era of McCarthyism and Cold War paranoia. They risk collaborations that often contained subtly rendered liberal themes. Indeed, the two were under FBI surveillance for years. <laughs> that I didn't know about, about him. That sounds amazing. Like, and it's wild how, like, they mentored Maurice Sendak and appealed to Duke Ellington. You, like, you just see how broad, like, the the artwork and how clear cut it is, and the, the storytelling is. The the Charles Schultz one is the one that, or I went wow to. Yeah. Like, I, that, I didn't expect to hear that. I'm going to add this to my wish list. Excuse me while I shop while we <laughs> record the podcast. <laughs> So what's what's on uh, what's your uh, one of your picks? So kind kind of related in terms of like how minimal it is. Have you ever heard of a, a book series called George and Martha? Mm-mm, I can't say that I have. Oh, I sat down earlier today with my kids and I downloaded the complete George and Martha uh, from the Internet Archive. It's written and illustrated by James Marshall and George and Martha is. <laughs> so good the the complete uh set is like 250 pages and the kids bowed out at about the halfway mark and went and did something else and i sat and read the rest of it but it it follows two best friends that are also hippos very simplistically drawn like it looks something it looks like something that a kid would draw very funny very he was also he was close friends with maurice sendak and and sendak um, wrote the forward to this edition of, of everything. And it was basically like, you know, he was snubbed by the Caldecott awards. He never really received a lot of recognition in his lifetime. And part of that was like, he was just, he very much did not want to be a commercial kind of artist and writer. Like he wrote what he wrote, which was tremendously funny, very compelling, a lot of non sequiturs, um, and, and that was it. The, the stories are hysterical, but you do read them sometimes and you're like, oh, I can tell why like a group of stuffy, you know, award people that would, would, um, place awards on people for children's literature would, would overlook this. The first story, most of the stories are like three pages long. And the first story is just Martha's making split pea soup because she loves making split pea soup. And then it flips to the next page and Harold is, is, is eating it. Sorry, not not Harold George. I'm mixing it up with your book. George is not <laughs> fond of split pea soup, but he doesn't want to hurt her feelings, so he just eats bowl and bowl after split pea soup. And then on this particular day, she feeds him ten bowls of split pea soup, and he thinks to himself, "I can't do this anymore." <laughs> so he pours the next bowl into his shoes underneath the table, and she sees him, and she's like, "How are you going to walk home with split pea soup in your?" in your shoe. And he's like, I'm sorry. I didn't want to hurt your feelings, but I really hate split pea soup. And the story ends with her saying, I also hate split pea soup. I just like making it. (laughs) (laughs) It is hands down funniest children's book stories I've, I've ever read. And, and and some of them are very sweet. 
they the characters clearly have a lot of love for each other but some of it's like it, they're just funny like there's no reason for it to be anything more than it is like there's there's in that first volume there's another one where george is in a hot air balloon and he's so big that it won't raise up and martha's like well maybe the basket's too heavy and he's like you're right and he gets out to check the basket and it floats away and he's like oh <laughs> oh well well i'd rather be on the ground with you <laughs> <laughs> yeah that little endearing quality of it like they find the positive yeah take on you know losing the balloon but now they're together yeah yeah or she gets like really irritated with him one day and then goes off and plays her saxophone and it calms her down and then he comes back and apologizes and she's like for what <laughs> <laughs> end of story <laughs> there's a great one where it just starts with him peeking in her bathroom window and it's like george had a bad habit of peeking into other people's windows <laughs> and then she catches him while she's in the bath and then she throws the bathtub out the window onto his head and then it's like he never did that again next story <laughs> it was those um these old school kids books they always had something you know, whether it was a, a a cute, like a little positive message or something funny, always had that ver- those very playful undertones. Oh, very, e- extremely, extremely playful. And I mean, there's definitely stuff in it that probably wouldn't fly anymore. There's one about George's sweet tooth where he loves candy and Martha's like, that's unhealthy for you. Stop eating candy. And he's like, no, I like it. And she pulls out a cigar and he's like, stop smoking. And she's like, no. And he's like, no, it's terrible for you. It's going to cause harm. And she's like, well, I'll stop smoking if you stop eating sweets. And I never <laughs> ate a sweet again. <laughs> it's What's amazing is the humor, the fact that it makes us both laugh that's it, it, crazy how a kid, because a kid is probably not going to laugh at it. A, a kid's probably just going to use it as a as a piece of oh, I, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't do this or I shouldn't do that. Oh, my kids, the my kids that, laughed at it for sure. Oh, they did. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. Yeah. All right, so they're they're okay. So they're able to understand the, the joke. Then that's good. So it's I I love how you could see that with kids' books sometimes. Like sometimes, you know what I think? I've always wondered this. I think it might be the case. They know parents are reading to the kids. Yep. So I think sometimes it's also to keep the parents engaged because probably reading it could feel boring to them. So they have to put in something that that they can make the parents get a kick out of, too. I think that's part of it. But but I think what's great about these ones in particular, and I'll put Harold and Purple Crayon in here as well, is there's no real moral to it outside of like these are really like two good friends that you know they sometimes don't get along and (laughs) martha like vows revenge on him in certain stories um but they're just there's no condescension there like there's no need for like this this message where we're not going to hit a kid over the head with a moral it's just like hey this is funny and i think you'll like it and in that there's a universal appeal because I really hate heavy handed, especially like in selecting things for now middle school and high school students. Like you really get a sense of the authors that are like the, the this person's condescending. This person's mm-hmm. trying to appeal purposely to kids that don't want to read or this person is purposely throwing a moral in here where it's like it's too heavy handed, whereas like simple yeah. is better a lot of times. Yeah, I mean the, these both with Harold and and the stories they kind of just are. 
they're just like, you know what I mean? Like there, there is no, there's nothing hidden about it. It's just a story, a fun story. Right. And that's, that's, I, I would imagine for me, that's probably what made me check out Harold and the Purple Crayon so many times. I just must have, and I still do. I just liked it visually. I, I don't know. It was, it's, it's, it's very hard to explain because he's just going from one thing to another. There really isn't a, like you mentioned, there's no real moral or meaning to it. He's right. just being almost. Right. right. As a kid with an imagination. We exactly. all understand That's that. A great way to put it. So my second one is, and this is probably what drew my affinity to being the dog lover that I am. And that was a book, which I don't know many people who know about this book. It's called a boy in the dog house uh, by Betsy Duffy. This I don't know if this was a scholastic book. It doesn't, uh, it's, it was published by a half moon book with the quote review, warm, funny, and wonderful by Patricia Riley Giff. I, I don't know who that is. I don't even know who the author is, but I did write in the book. As I look at it now, when I was a kid, I wrote my name in it. Um, yeah, I wrote my name in it and I scribbled on, on the front. So I did cause damage to the book. So I, apparently, AJ, I did write in books at one point. In time. Yes. <laughs> um, but this book was cool. I It has at each chapter, it has a little drawing of a, of a dog or, you know, the, the dog's name is Lucky and the, the main character is George. So it's about the boy, George, and his dog, Lucky. And there's a lot of artwork within this book. It's a chapter book for kids, but there's, there is still a lot of artwork in it, which is really neat. And this is another one like Harold and the purple crayon. I read it many times and Mm. on the back of the book, a book list says a sure hit with beginning chapter book readers and dog lovers alike. So no wonder I liked it. And the, the little synopsis on the back says George loves his new puppy, lucky, but lucky is out of control. George has to train him soon or his parents will take Lucky back to the pound. Lucky has a lot of work to do. He has to train George to sleep outside with him, scratch him behind the ears, and feed him his favorite food, ham. Who will win this comic battle of wills? <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, it's it's just fun. Like, and it, it was a very, like, um, you know, I, I kind of recall what my mom always pictured. I, I once, like, she always envisioned me surrounded by four dogs, like me, me surrounded with my dogs. And this, this book is kind of like an encapsulation of that for me. So that, that's why this was probably my other childhood pick. I don't know how popular this one is like Harold and the Purple Crayon. This may be more, one of those obscure, like, you know, you know, those things like off the beaten path that not many people know about. I came across it by maybe happenstance. I don't even know where I got it from. To be honest, I'm looking at a copy right now again on Internet Archive. So if you want to read along at home, <laughs> AJ's adding another book to his wish list. <laughs> More shopping. <laughs> and this one is water stained. I love. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. I mean, it's it's very old. I'm not sure what year this is even from. 1991. 91. Oh, and here we go. About the author. Betsy Duffy was born in Anderson, South Carolina and attended Clemson University. A Boy in the Doghouse is her second book for children. The character Lucky is derived from Mrs. Duffy's experiences with her puppy Chester and the 10 other dogs she and her family have owned over the years. 
Betsy lives in Atlanta, Georgia with her husband and two sons. And the illustrator was Leslie Morrill. And Leslie Morrill illustrated many books for children. He lives in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And I apparently wrote, oh my goodness, AJ, this is unbelievable. In the back of the book, I haven't looked at this book now in years. And for some reason, two two things are are amusing about this. There's a, a picture on the back the last page of the book in the back where, where the about the author is and the dog there's a picture of the dog laying down with his shadow what's really gruesome is the dog sadly looks like he's passed away with the way the picture was drawn <laughs> so it's actually very disturbing and the fact that i colored in the dog green because i didn't like the white spots like i <laughs> I, I guess i thought the white spots were for me to color so if you could see yeah i'm looking at the same picture on my end it looks like he's ble- he's bled to death yeah, I, I I know that's not what was intended, but if you could see on mine, I <laughs> colored yeah. in it green. And remember how we were talking about when you checked out a book at the library, the, the the card. I created my own. You can't see it, but I created my own taped down slot here to insert myself checking out my own book, and I wrote my name on that's it. That's adorable. And clearly, I couldn't write the letter A. Adorable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my little self. <laughs> All right. Did so, you have another one? Yes. My next and last book um, is a signed copy of Bill the Boy Wonder, the secret co-creator of Batman, which is by Mark Tyler Nobleman, illustrated by Ty Templeton. This this is a fascinating book. Um, so I went to a children's lit literature conference when I was getting my master's in uh, as a reading specialist. And one of the authors that was there was Mark Tyler Nobleman. And he did all of this research. It, it, into bill finger are you familiar with bill finger no most people are not and there's a reason for that and this this book tells why that is uh, bill finger essentially created batman um but was not credited with creating batman until relatively recently um so bob kane is the creator of batman and bob kane um was friends with bill finger and said hey i have an idea for this new character called Batman. And he showed him his illustration and it was horrible. And Bill essentially came up with how Batman still looks today. And he wrote a lot of the initial Batman stories. He created the Batmobile, the Batcave. He created the Boy Wonder. He created a lot of the Batman villains. But Bob Kane always kind of gave him the shaft and like in, in Kane's contract, he stipulated that he would always be referred to as the sole creator of Batman. Um, so Bill Finger was the driving force behind everything that you know about Batman, but never got the credit for it and didn't get a lot of the compensation for it because Bob Kane was kind of a jerk. Um, and in the, I believe the seventies, maybe the early eighties in like the earliest comic cons in, in New York city, there were panels where people started to push the correct narrative of like, Hey, it's bill <laughs> like bills here. And Bob Kane wrote this scathing, I think magazine article addressing this rumor that bill was the true creator of Batman, which he was, um, basically was like, no, this is a, this is a lie. Um, it's a, it's a fascinating story. They wrote one, he, Mark Tyler Nobleman wrote one on, on Bill Finger and he wrote one on, on Siegel and Schuster, the creators of Superman who also got the shaft with DC comics. And for decades, like, 
like they sold the rights early on for I think $135 for Superman and like spent the rest of their lives essentially in poverty trying to get some kind of compensation for this industry that they helped create. It's it's fascinating, but it's it's told in, through the medium of a, a children's book. So you could read this to a child and they would perfectly understand what is happening here. And it does so many cool things with like, you know, Bill Bill's secret identity is Bill, <laughs> right? Like he changed his whole name because he like in the 30s in New York, a lot of a lot of Jews were not wanted for work, so he changed his name. Um and then he started working in the industry and like he this was his secret identity that he was the co-creator of Batman, but you see his name now on any Batman uh, merchandise or any Batman movie, it'll say Bob Kane and Bill Finger, but it didn't until relatively recently. Very interesting. That when you were describing all of it, I felt like I was watching a documentary. Like that was an excellent. Like you had me enthralled in the whole aspect of it. I was waiting just for the camera to pan. <laughs> Well, and there's there's so many, and you might be listeners. Apologies if you're like, where where's the children's literature side of this? It's presented in in such a way that like it's a really important topic, like intellectual property, that's presented in a way that you could read this to if I like I could read this to my son who's seven and he would perfectly understand everything about this story. Um, but it's presented in a way that's very comic booky. Like Ty Templeton has a very old school style of drawing. I think he did the Batman sixty six comics, which makes sense. Um, but there's there's a scene where like Bill passes away, and his son, I, like you turn the page, and like immediately I started crying the first time I saw this. You turn the page, and like his son took his ashes and went to a beach and formed the bat symbol in the ashes and then the tide came in and washed it away. Like, and there's so much symbolism there of like, nobody knew who this guy was at the time. Like he created a Batman and then it's washed away. Oh, yeah. It's like poetic and sad all at the same time. Yeah. I mean that like, I mean, you taught me something too with the Superman. I I didn't know the creators only got $137. Like, and they and, and and I am not a Superman fan by any means, but that is the character of DC. Yeah, I mean, I know everybody loves Batman, but Superman really was the first. If I'm remembering correctly, um, they didn't see their names as like the creators of Superman until the Superman movie, when wow. it got so big. Like the, they they were able to see it. Um, yeah. Now, part of the reason why there's an S, Siegel and Schuster. So they inserted themselves in there, oh, but that's they weren't being compensated accordingly. That's a shame yep. for, you know, especially when you're part of creating an industry right. and a character. I mean, eh, they, they suddenly got their names in there with the S, you know, and everything, but very, very interesting going down this memory, going down memory lane of, of, of these books. This was an interesting exercise. I didn't know how well this would this would work at first when I proposed it to you, but it was actually quite entertaining for me. Good. Well, hopefully our audience feels the same. <laughs> well, we want to thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to join our newsletter where we write micro reviews. You can go to makeshift.org slash podcast. Makeshiftpress.org. Yep. Yeah, makeshiftpress.org. Don't, if you've listened to the previous episodes, AJ 
gives a different domain. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so yeah, you can go there to sign up uh, for the micro reviews, or if you'd like to join our discord, that will also be in the show notes for this episode. And until next time, I've been Frank. I've been Adam. And this book's over. Boo!